I hope that you will turn with me in a Bible to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And if you've already turned to Genesis chapter 27, you can hold your finger there to mark that spot because we will be going there in just a few moments. But I want to start with Hebrews chapter 11, verse 20. And there we read, By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. When we're initially reading through what we call the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, we can easily skim right over this verse. Well, of course, God makes himself known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all the time. So why wouldn't Isaac be in the hall of faith, right? And so we keep reading. But upon closer examination, when you think about how is it that Isaac is an example of faith for us when he blesses Jacob and Esau, what is it that Isaac did that is exemplary at all? And you're hard-pressed to think of something. Even if you know the Bible very well, you know the story. Why is he commended here? The ones who've gone before, it's rather obvious why they're commended. Clearly, Abel offered a better sacrifice than his brother Cain. Clearly, Enoch walked with God. Noah prepared the ark even when not a single raindrop had fallen. Abraham believed God's promises, and it was credited to him as righteousness. But Isaac, what did he do? Isaac is a fairly passive character in the Scriptures. There's a lot more that happens to him than he actually does himself. He rarely takes the initiative. He's often weak and timid in the face of adversity and struggle. So how, why is he here? That's the question. Why is Isaac here? It can be the case that faith takes a very different form than what we normally think. We think of faith like Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham, big, bold, courageous. But it can also be the case that we can, in effect, back our way into faith. We weren't looking for faith. We weren't looking for God. God found us and faith came to us in spite of ourselves. That is the testimony of so many. And so there is great encouragement here. Great encouragement for all of us. As we pass through trying and tumultuous times, as we face hardship and adversity, whether it's on the world stage or in our personal lives, when our plans don't go the way we think they should go, 
when we're not sure where God is or what God is doing. There's great encouragement by looking at the life of Isaac. And the overarching truth to see in Isaac, Isaac's life is this. Only the gift of faith can transform our reluctant attitude toward God's promises. Our reluctant attitude toward God's promises. We're going to see all kinds of reluctance in Isaac. He's not looking for God. He's not looking for faith. He has his own plans. He has his own way of accomplishing those plans. But faith can transform that initial reluctance into total surrender to God's promises. Total surrender. So that, yes, our faith, like Isaac's, might be reluctant, but it is real. It is real. Is your faith real? Let's test ourselves against what the Holy Spirit reveals to us in the example of Isaac. So let's turn then to Genesis. And our main focus will be on the narrative in Genesis 27, but I need to highlight two introductory matters here in the life of Isaac. So if you back up to Genesis 25, we're told in verse 21 that Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife, that is Rebekah, his wife, because she was childless. Well, you'd think, well, this is an example of faith. He's praying. We have reason to, to doubt the sincerity of his, his prayers in just a minute. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebe Rebecca, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. So let's note that God has made a sovereign promise. The younger will serve, pardon me, the older will serve the younger. The older will serve the younger. What you would expect is the younger to serve the older, right? And it's the other way around. God has promised this. It's unconditional. No matter what they do, before they've done anything good or bad, this is God's promise. This is God's plan. God has spoken. And here's a second matter we need to highlight. We're told that these boys grow up. The older is Esau, the younger is Jacob. And they have very different dispositions, very different aptitudes, very different vocations. Esau is a hunter. He likes to be outside. He likes to bring home the kind of food that Isaac likes to eat. And we're told that Isaac prefers him. Isaac prefers him. All kinds of dysfunctionality going on here. None of it is commendable. 
but this is a statement of fact. Isaac prefers him. Rebekah, his wife, on the other hand, prefers the younger brother, Jacob. Why? Because he likes to hang out with mom. He likes to be in the house. He's a good chef. All of this is the way it is. Well, eventually, Jacob tricks Esau out of his birthright. Esau, by law of primogeniture, of being the older son, has the right to inherit the family's wealth. This is all his. And yet, for a bowl of stew, he exchanges that to his younger brother, Jacob. That's it. And the writer of Hebrews is well aware of this, and he says in Hebrews 12, verse 16, see that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. So what's done is done. And what we need to understand is that God's choice of the younger son, Jacob, isn't because Jacob is a nicer guy than Esau. No, this is before they've done anything good or bad. He's, he's a trickster. He lies. He'll do whatever he needs to do to get what he wants. But Esau is fully responsible for the life he chooses. He chooses his stomach. He chooses his materialistic needs and desires over what God had given to him as the older son. And there's more. He has no desire to marry within the family. He marries people who come from idolatrous backgrounds, and so he shares in their idolatry. He doesn't care anything about the God of his father Isaac or the God of his grandfather Abraham. Very different. Very different. Well, through chapter 26, we see Isaac moving here and there. Nothing particularly commendable, although God continues to remind him time and time again that he has made promises. He's made a promise to bless Abraham, and that same promise is going to run right through Isaac to the younger son. All right, well, this brings us to chapter 27. And here we see Isaac's reluctance. Let's read together verses 1 to 4. Genesis 27, verses 1 to 4. When Isaac was old, and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son. Here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Remember, Isaac knows that God has promised that the older son is going to serve the younger. 
That was specifically revealed to Rebekah, but you know Isaac knows this too. He knows what God's promise is. He knows what God's plan is. But does he care? No, he likes Esau better. Why does he like Esau better? Well, maybe because of custom. This is the expectation that the older son should inherit. It's also just his natural preference. He just is more inclined to gravitate toward Esau. And then there's also the materialistic, pragmatic reason that he likes the kind of food that Esau brings home. How would you like that to be recorded about you? Driven by your stomach. It's all about what you want to eat. This is the driving factor behind so much of what Isaac does. But here he is in Hebrews 11. By faith, he blessed Jacob and Esau. So what do we make of this? Here's what we need to see in these verses. We all begin with a reluctant attitude toward God's promises. We all begin with a reluctant attitude toward God's promises. Our first response in the face of what God has said is to push back. Is to say, no, God, I think you're heading in the right direction, but I think we can do better than that. Or, no, God, that may be what you said, but I prefer Esau. And we see this all over Isaac's life, don't we? He is reluctant to embrace this. Again, because of natural preference, because of custom, because of tradition. But this motivates so many of us, too. When you're going through a hardship, when you're going through a trial, when you're wondering, where is the fulfillment of God's promise in this? Our first response, my first response, all of us, is to say there's got to be a better way. This is not the way I plan my life. This is not the way life should go. Doesn't God want me to be comfortable and healthy and prosperous? Why has he allowed this to happen? You ever thought that way? Of course you have. We all have. We all have. We think we know better. And so we think, okay, well, let me come up with a different plan. Even though God said that, let me come up with this scheme to get Esau in here. And he uses this a ruse. I'm an old man. I don't know the day of my death. Well, if you continue reading, he ends up living a good deal longer. He's not about to die. But he wants to make sure that he goes ahead and, and, and solidifies the blessing for Esau. Remember, God hasn't promised any of us a life of comfort or ease or material prosperity. He hasn't. What has he promised? He's promised that his purposes will be fulfilled. He's promised that he will bless his people. He's promised that he will rescue his people from their greatest enemy, namely sin and death. Death being the just consequence of sin. He's promised that he will preserve his people unto eternity. 
And he's promised that he will transform his people into the image of his son Jesus. This is his preordained, predestined plan that everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be transformed into the image of Jesus. That's what he's promised. But we get it so wrong, don't we? We have our plans. We have our preferences. We know the way we want our life to go. And so did Isaac. So we continue reading. He's not the only one with a scheme. Verse 5. Now, Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat, so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father, just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, but my father Esau is a hairy man. My, my brother Esau is a hairy man while I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, My son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother. And she prepared some tasty food, just the way his father liked it. Then Rebekah took the best clothes of Esau, her older son, which she had in the house, and put them on her younger son, Jacob. She also covered his hands and the smooth part of his neck with the goat skins. Then she handed to her son Jacob the tasty food and the bread she had made. He went to his father and said, My father. Yes, my son, he answered, Who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asked his son, How did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he proceeded to bless him. Are you really my son Esau, he asked? I am, he replied, pausing there. All kinds of scheming and plotting. Rebecca thinks, oh, no, 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 no. Isaac's not going to cheat my favorite son out of the blessing. I've got a better plan. So she intervenes, and she sends Jacob to pretend to be Esau, to try to trick Isaac. And while Isaac is somewhat skeptical, he applies some tests. In the end, he's deceived, completely deceived. And you see how wrong all of this is. He even brings God into the equation to justify his lies. How'd you find the game so quickly? Oh, 
God gave me success. What do we make of this? Again, Isaac is on the receiving end of so, so much of this. He's, he's mousy, he's passive, he's weak. How's our faith here? What we see is that God doesn't need our scheming to fulfill his promises. God doesn't need our scheming to fulfill his promises. But we can often think he does, right? Think of how much mischief has been done by people who think God needs their help. Rebecca heard the promise that the older son will serve the younger. She knows that eventually Jacob is the one who's to inherit the blessing. So she thinks maybe she can speed things on a little bit. We'll just speed it up. Let me hasten this. It's going to happen anyway. Maybe God just needs my help. And I'm sure God would be fine with using a little deception here and there, a little plotting here and there, a little scheme here and there to justify this. God doesn't need our help. He will accomplish his purposes. He doesn't need us to use deception or plotting or scheming to accomplish and fulfill his promises, does he? Now, here's another issue. We may wonder, wait, Jacob is the promised one? He's the one through whom this blessing is supposed to run? He's the one God chose? What? All this deception? Is this part of God's plan? Here's what we need to say in response. First, Rebecca and Jacob will suffer the consequences for their deception. As a result of this, Jacob has to go on the run. He has to live as a fugitive. And we're not told that he ever sees his mother, Rebecca, again. There are lifelong consequences for this. They don't get off scot-free. They will reap what they sow. So we can't use any of this to justify sin. We just can't. But here's another truth to put alongside that. There is no sin, there is no evil that God cannot overrule to accomplish his purposes. There is no sin that God cannot overrule. He can and he will. But remember, he didn't choose Jacob because he's a nicer person, a more obedient person. No, he's a liar. He uses God to justify his sin and his evil. So why? This is what the Apostle Paul addresses in Romans chapter 9, verse 10. He says, not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might stand, 
not by works, but by him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. It is God's free choice to give mercy to a trickster and a liar like Jacob, if he so chooses. And Esau is fully responsible for the decisions that he made. Fully responsible. He can't blame this on fate. He chose to sell his birthright. He chose idolatry over the faith of his fathers. Now, Paul anticipates what you're going to say. Now, well, this doesn't seem fair. Romans 9, verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to say out of the, to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Does God as the potter, does God as the creator and the sustainer of all things not have the right to do as he pleases? Remember, we as the creation have no right, no basis, no grounds to demand anything of God. It is His sovereign and free choice. And His purpose, His promises will be fulfilled. He doesn't need our scheming. But our scheming, our sin, will be punished. Let's continue reading in verse 25. Now being deceived, tricked, Here's what happens. Then he said, my son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him and he ate. And he brought some wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went to him and kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness, an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. Let's just note here that Isaac has absolutely no idea what's really going on. This happens in spite of himself. He thinks he's blessing Esau. But he continues to give the blessing. And the truth we need to see in these verses is that God can fulfill his promises in spite of us in spite of us, in spite of our best efforts to do otherwise, in spite of our best efforts to fight against his purposes, to fight against him, God can fulfill his promises. In Romans 11, God's call is irrevocable. His purposes will be fulfilled. His promises are unchangeable. Unchangeable. You realize that? 
God can fulfill his promises in spite of us. Isaac doesn't have a clue what's going on here. He doesn't have a clue. And yet God is accomplishing his purpose. And this is how it is for us so often. You weren't looking for God. You weren't looking for faith. And yet God has has been working all along. And when you do realize you have faith, and you realize there's new life inside of you giving you an ability you did not have before to trust God, you now see Jesus in a whole new light. Now he's not just an exemplary character from history. Now he's not just someone your parents told you to model your life after. Now he's not just someone that your grandmother believed in. Now he is your Savior. And when you see that real faith in you, you look back and you realize, God's been bringing me to this point all along. I had no idea what he was doing. I was lost. I was wandering far from him, far from the fold of God. And yet God was there all along pursuing me, steering me, guiding me, fulfilling his promises to me. Do you realize that? Do you trust God to fulfill his purposes even in spite of you, even when you have no idea what's going on? He's always working. Amen? He is always working. And then we come to Esau, verses 30 to 40. After Isaac finished blessing him, and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. He too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. Then he said to him, My father, please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, Who are you? I am your son, he answered. Your firstborn, Esau. Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted the game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came, and I blessed him. And indeed, he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Esau said, Isn't he rightly named Jacob? This is the second time He has taken advantage of me. He took my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing. Then he asked, haven't you reserved any blessing for me? Isaac answered Esau, I have made him lord over you, and have made all his relatives his servants, and I have sustained him with grain and new wine. So what can I possibly do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. Then Esau wept aloud. His father Isaac answered him, Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heavens above. You will live by the sword, and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. You may still be wondering, where's the faith? Why is Isaac in the hall of faith? He's been tricked into doing this. He seems stuck in a corner. He can't do anything now other than offer Esau a lesser blessing, which isn't much of a blessing at all other than occasionally you'll get the upper hand and your descendants will get the upper hand over your brother's descendants. 
Look very carefully at the end of verse 33. Verse 33. It says, I ate it just before you came, and I blessed him. And indeed, he will be blessed. Do you see it? Do you see what's happening? Even though he didn't know what was happening in the moment. Even though he realizes trickery and deception and sin helped bring about this purpose. He surrenders to God's promise. He says, Esau, I don't know what else to tell you, but what's done is done, and Jacob will be blessed. This is what God promised, and in spite of myself, I've blessed him. He will be blessed. God's purpose will be fulfilled. And herein is his real faith. It is reluctant, but it is real. It is real. Remember this. Real faith. Real faith. The kind of faith that Isaac backs into here results in total surrender to God's promises. When you're able to say, God, this isn't the life I wanted. This isn't the life I planned for myself. This isn't the circumstance that I wanted to find myself in. But God, you are God, you are good, and you have spoken. And I'm going to trust you. I'm going to surrender my own plans. I'm going to surrender my own ways, my own purposes, my own preferences, my own traditions, whatever they may be, to you and your sovereign will. By faith. Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau regarding their futures. Is there real faith in you? Can you say yes to God's promises and God's purposes? Can you surrender your life, surrender everything to God? Well, you may be like that father in Mark chapter 9, whose son Jesus cast demons out of. And he says, Lord, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Maybe there's, there's lingering doubt in your heart and in your life today. And you need to cry out, God, I believe. I believe your word. I believe you're good. And you are as good as your word. But God, I, I have this lingering worry. I have this lingering doubt. I'm not sure what to make of this thing. Today is the day to seek the Lord in that thing, whatever that is. To cry out to him, to call out to him. And even if he doesn't give you a perfect answer or show you, or this is why I allowed that, this is what I'm doing. You may not, never have that. You may never have that, but... When there's real faith, there's saving faith, then you realize and you are fully ready to confess that you are at the end of yourself. When God brings you to this point, you're able to say, God's ways are so much higher and so much better than mine. I'm going to trust him even when I don't have the answers, even when I don't have perfect resolution about this. You know why? Because I believe all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to trust that he is enough. 
I may be reluctant to admit that I need Jesus to die on a cross for me. But I have no other hope. I have no other hope. I am lost. I am condemned. I am hopeless apart from Christ. You may come reluctantly, but it can still be real. It was real for Isaac. This isn't what he was looking for. This isn't what he planned, but it was real. God convinced him. May the Holy Spirit convince you today. May you know, may you have an assurance in your heart today that Jesus is enough. And may you trust him come what may. May you trust God through whatever adversity you may have passed through, whatever adversity you're facing now, whatever adversity there is to come, may you trust him. May you trust him. And that is real and saving faith. To receive what Jesus has done for you and to rest in him. May you have saving and real faith today as we go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for speaking to us through this story. Through these historical events we otherwise might overlook or think are so far removed and remote from our daily lives. Lord, I thank you for the way your Holy Spirit shows us that nothing could be further from the truth, that because of your Holy Spirit, these words speak to us with an immediate relevance pointing us to the nature of true faith. And I thank you, Lord, that faith isn't something that we need to try to conjure up or manufacture or work up in a moment. We can't do it, Lord. We need you to give faith, to remind us that it does not depend on human desire or effort, that all of this is your good and free gift to sinners like us. And if there is anyone hearing this message who has yet to receive your gift, to receive Christ as Lord and as Savior, Lord, I pray that this would be the day of salvation. And for all of us, give us perseverance, Lord. When we don't understand, when we don't know what's happening, when we have doubts, when we're confused, may we trust and may we enjoy the sweetness of trusting you, of simply taking you at your word, come what may. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.